Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe. And if this is your first episode and you're wondering what this whole thing is all about, well, I'll tell you. Every week, I find my head surgically attached to the body of a different friend and cinephile. Together, we are given a note containing a theme, sometimes specific and sometimes vague. Our job is then to pick a pair of movies that fit that theme and then watch and discuss. This is The Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. Hey gang, welcome back to the latest episode, and let's also welcome back a returning guest, Rick Todd Johnson. Rick, how's it going today? Oh, going very well. Yeah, going very well over here as well. I uh, just a, I'm just a few days out. What do you mean over here? I thought we were attached to each other. Yeah. Okay. Cut. Take. Do it again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Doing pretty good. Just got our uh, just a couple of days out of after my second dose. Uh, dealt with a day and a half of some surprisingly mild but still very noticeable side effects. Uh, spent the day like just wiped out, exhausted, pretty groggy and a little achy, but otherwise like a small price to pay, I think, for, you know, getting everything under control. Well, I, I just think it's very nice that we can now be attached, you know, like, you know, two heads on the top of the body together now. We don't have to have the six feet apart. So, uh so I, I like this, um, but uh, um, you may have noticed that I, I I ate a crap load of garlic before uh, we started recording here. So, yeah, hope you don't mind. Well, that's I mean, that's an improvement, if you ask me. Well, normally I eat a garlic load of crap. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's got to be kind of a step. It's a, it's a smaller, a smaller amount, but it lingers a lot more. Yeah, I, well, I don't know if they actually cancel each other out, you know, I mean, so. So what have you uh, what have you been up to? It's been a couple of weeks. The last we heard of you was from the um, uh, Archaiju episode with uh, Carlos. Any any big doings in in your world? Oh man, not well. I mean, I did. I mean, right after that, I I, I managed to uh, watch all but one of the fifty six or so movies nominated for the Oscars this year. Uh, so I I did get my most my largest percentage ever in a year of, of film scene before the Oscars. The only one I did not see was The Father and it won two Oscars. And so now I'm really pissed about it. <laughs> I know it's a movie I just had not heard of. Nobody I knew had heard of that movie. And then it won and people were very upset because they were expecting that, uh, I think the Oscar producers thought Chadwick was gonna win. Well, that the, the way they set up the show was they thought it was the end of the show was going to be this big, you know, 15 minute, you know, let's all have a quarter hour of silence over Chadwick Boseman, you know, and, and then it didn't happen. And the thing just like landed with a thud, you know, it's like, Hey, it's Anthony Hopkins. He won his second Oscar and nobody cares, you know, cause it wasn't Chadwick Boseman. Yeah. Well, he, he didn't even really seem like, I mean, Anthony Hopkins. Well, he wasn't bad. Yeah. Well, he, he, he was asleep. <laughs> yeah. He was, he was shocked. At, yeah. He didn't think he was going to win at all. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't watch the uh, events this year. I didn't do it like I said I was going to try and watch a bunch of the Academy Award stuff. I I didn't. I also saw all but five of the Golden Raspberry Award nominated films, and the one the main one I 
not much. The main one I did not watch won a bunch of awards. So. Oh, which one's that? That would be the uh, the My Pillow guys uh, oh. fake documentary about uh, the about Trump being having the election stolen. From yeah, so, I can do without that. Yeah, I've actually I actually put on my list. I said I will see every film on here, but I'm not going to watch that piece of shit. And normally I wouldn't call a film a piece of shit until I've seen it, but I don't need that crap in my head. I'm, I'm mad enough at my wife for buying one of his damn pillows. <laughs> so, oh, no. It worked fine for her. She has a lot of neck and, and headache issues. And so she's been trying every pillow on the market. And, and uh, she went through that. She, she had one for, she got one for about half a year or so. And she actually said it was fine. But I mean, to me, I, I'd like touch it. And it's like, it's got styrofoam in it. I mean, it's like, how quality is that? You know, so I don't know. It's it's a stupid product so even before all this all the all the stuff about his political leanings and stuff i mean it was i always i I just cannot stand the guy so i didn't mean to make this political sorry but no 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 it's fine i i do i know the razzies are a little bit more controversial these last few years than normal they they seem to always kind of controversial because it's i mean yeah there's a group of people who nominate them and stuff but you, I, I don't know if it's the same now, but it used to be that members didn't even need to have seen the films to nominate them. And, and a lot of it is based on, a lot of it is piling on certain actors. Like, I mean, they always go after Madonna. You know, they always go after Sylvester Stallone. It doesn't matter. This year they nominated Bruce Willis for three films. And they, they give him one nomination, but it's for all three films. And uh, as worst actor or worst supporting actor, I think is what it was. Because he's not in any of the films very much. And I, I watched uh, two of the three and yeah, they're terrible movies and he's not good at them, but nobody's good. At them. You know, they're just really bad movies. And, you know, it's just, he's getting older and he's just taking whatever part he can. I never thought I'd say that Nicolas Cage is really good at choosing his films, but compared to Bruce Willis, he is. <laughs> so, and every once in a while, Cage lands one. Well, I think Cage is, he's Cage. He's not sought after like, by maybe the big budget uh, studios anymore. I- I'm sure he could probably get into something, for, you know, some Bruckheimer production if he really wanted to. But I do think Cage is still sought after by by actual like filmmakers. And I don't, I, I, I'm saying that in a really condescending way. I just mean that there's a lot of stuff that he's in that is clearly a cash grab. It is, cr- it is clearly a group of people who are saying like, oh, this is going to get some money on the video market. And sometimes he's great. Sometimes he kind of sleepwalks through them, but he is still sought after by, you know, kind of up and coming people who are like, I want to make a serious artistic film here. I want to make a statement. I also think that he's caught up to his own cult where he's realized, oh, wait, these people love me and they love that I try weird things. So it may may or may not be big budget or low budget or, or it might be low budget or whatever. And he may not really care about the product, but every once in a while you see him do like incredible work and, you know, like the color out of space was like, uh, you know, incredible, you know, and but that legitimately good filmmaker, you know, uh, you know, trying something and, and brought cage into it and it worked out just great, you know? And so he just did, I, I think his cult is, is he, he's, I think he's been aware of it, but I think he's really playing to it now. Films like, yeah, that's films true. like Andy. Um, he's kind of like maybe taking a Bruce Willis, uh, not Bruce Willis, uh, Bruce Campbell kind of turn. Like Campbell is always fully aware of his cult, right? And he leans hard into it because he knows that's how he makes the money. And I think kind of Cage is kind of going that way. 
yeah i i think there's also a difference because cage when he is bringing energy is all is almost always fun but then you get performances and less of them i think nowadays although i maybe i'm just not watching these movies where he kind of like dials things down way too low and he seems to be kind of sleepwalking through it i'm thinking like like bangkok dangerous yeah he's not he's not swinging for the fences he's not doing anything odd he's just kind of like uh quiet and and uh subdued for most of the movie sometimes quiet and subdued works for him too though so you know i mean it's you know but maybe not in an action film that's the problem there it's an action film and he's like I just watched uh, Willy's Wonderland. Have you had a chance to watch that yet? Yeah, that one, I liked it better than the Banana Splits movie where they did the concept, uh, which was disappointing, even though, I mean, I wasn't expect The week before I saw it, I had no idea there was a Banana Splits movie coming out. And as you know, uh, Banana Splits have been big with me since I was five years old. So I still have my 45, you know, RPM records of the Banana Splits that I, sent through a Kellogg cereal box to get in the mail. And I still have those. Oh yeah. Because the banana splits came on TV when I was five. <laughs> so you know I was really into it. Um so then there's like all of a sudden there's a banana splits horror movie and it's like well that doesn't really jive well with me. And it didn't because it was just I I as lame as their old show was when you watch it now it's like I didn't want to see them like killing people you know like you know i can't believe they got the i I can't believe they got the the rights to use those characters to do that but you know what else is what else is warner doing with those characters now so i liked wonderland better uh than that i mean i thought it was a a different take on it It had some cool stuff going on in it and and visually there were some really cool moments but i just feel it didn't work overall no it it didn't work and i I was a bit surprised that after, you know, after half an hour in the movie, the realization like, oh, Nick Cage isn't going to say anything in this movie. I I kind of liked what he was able to do because a lot of it, you could say he is being subdued and kind of sleepy in it. But every once in a while, he would have yeah a weird tick or a weird reaction to something that I was like, okay, King, he's still, he is invested in the material enough that he is making choices. This isn't... Well, I also wonder those choices were actually in the material itself. So, I mean, he could have just been following the directions of the script. Yeah, okay. I mean, I'm sure he was playing a little bit, but I have no idea because I haven't read the script, so I have no idea what was in the script and what he improvised. So it's hard to say without doing that. And I've seen no interviews on it, so I have no idea. Well, yeah, I'm assuming he made some choices because otherwise, like, that movie, it's a surprising amount of that movie is watching Nicolas Cage... Legitimately clean up, clean up a room, a and then play some pinball, and you know, dance around weird, and you know, it's like okay. So that that that's a bit of a digression, but we can uh, get into our theme today. And our theme it is the start of Vincent Price month. This is going to be a series of four episodes for Vincent Price. Uh, his birthday is later this month, so this would be 110, which it's kind of ridiculous to say like, oh, somebody would have been such and such a year old, and especially at 110. But um, all month, we're going to be talking about Vincent Price, and this is going to be our inaugural episode. We're going to be talking about one of my favorites, The Abominable Dr. Fibes, and its sequel, Dr. Fibes Rises Again. So I guess we will 
take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll talk about the first one, 1971's The Abominable Dr. Fibes. you to meet a dear friend. Nine killed you. Nine shall die. Your wife no fives. But you I will kill. But you can't, doctor. I am already dead. Here, how are we gonna get him off this? You take his head and I'll take his feet. Let's unscrew him. Dr. Vibes, who samples the finer things of life in his own inimitable way and experiments with fascinating instruments of death. The what, sir? The guitar. The ten curses visited upon the pharaohs before Exodus. Nine shall die. Nine eternities in doom. Because uh, of boils, of bats. Frogs? Frogs, yes. And because of blood. Because oh. of hail in the bloody middle of nowhere. Released in 1971, The Abominable Dr. Fibes is a horror comedy, or at least a horror film with strong comedic elements, in which Vincent Price, as the titular Dr. Fibes, seeks revenge on the hospital staff he holds responsible for failing to save his wife's life on the operating table. Aided by the mysterious Volnavia, Virginia North, Fibes kills each of the nine doctors and nurses in Rube Goldbergian manners, ways inspired by the biblical plagues of Egypt. Now, this movie is, I've long said, if not my favorite Vincent Price movie, it's like really high up there. It, I saw this when I was first working at Suncoast. I'm sure you remember them because this is around the time I met you and you were buying a bunch of them too. But all of those MGM Midnight Movies DVDs, I was buying most of those and certainly all of the Price films that they released. And up to that point, I'd only really seen Price in a few things. I'd seen, of course, Edward Scissorhands. I know I had seen The Tingler and House on Haunted Hill, but I, I was like really kind of getting into Vincent Price at this time. And this one really kind of like, uh, really kind of surprised me at the time. It had such a, a sense of style and such a clean execution in what it was going for. And the humor was really refreshing. The kills were interesting. It was actually funny and fun in a way that a lot of those Vincent Price movies from the 60s and 70s, even the one, even some of the ones I really like, 
uh, can feel a little bit stayed or maybe not stayed, but they, they can just have an uneven tone. And I think this one really like kind of hit a lot more and uh, a lot stronger than a lot of the other ones I was watching at the time. But I, I'm sure you, you saw this years before I did this. I mean, oh, I yeah. saw this in like 2003 or 2002, whenever that was. Yeah, I, uh, I probably saw this around 83, 84, whatever year. Whatever year I ran across it in Video City uh, as on, on uh, VHS, and it was highly recommended to me by the guys that ran Video City. He said, "Oh, you got to see it about all Doctor Fives," and they used to like slip me like under the counter movies all the time, you know, kind of black market stuff, stuff they couldn't put in the shelves, but you know, stuff that oh, wow. wasn't out on VHS. But they, they oh, the way you were saying under the counter slipping stuff they can't put on the shelves, my mind immediately went to really disgusting pornography. Nope, no porn. It was all like stuff like uh, Evil Roy Slade, which was a 1970s uh, TV movie with uh, John Aston from the Adams Family uh, riding around uh, or actually pretending to ride around on a horse. <laughs> but um, it's a Western without horses, basically. It's, it's a very silly TV movie and things like that. Um, before they had an official copy of Pink Flamingos, they had a recorded one. You know, so it was like it was like stuff recorded on VHS that they couldn't they couldn't officially put on the shelves because it didn't have a case or anything like that. But it was stuff that they had in their own personal collection. They're like, hey, check this movie out, you know. So, yeah, I saw Pink Flamingos that way and multiple maniacs. And and uh, I think Quaxer Fortune has a cousin in the Bronx uh, with Gene Wilder. I saw before they actually had a real legit copy of it. Um, but yeah, just, and, and it was like every week I'd go in there and I'd rent, you know, or every time I went in there, I'd rent a couple of movies, but they'd always say, Hey, Patrick, you know, cause they knew me as Patrick at that point, even though I was going by Rick, but my card said Patrick. So they're like, they're like, Hey, you know, have you checked this one out? You know, I was like, Oh yeah, thanks man. You know, I'd, and I bring the other one back, you know? So I was kind of part of this like, like chain of, of, you know, people that they trusted and, you know, passing around movies and stuff. It was pretty cool. I even brought in a couple of movies that I'd recorded that they hadn't seen and stuff. So it was like kind of a little black market without any money passing or that sort of thing. But uh, Fives was not one of those films, but that was one of the films they recommended to me. They said, oh, you're into this stuff. He's like, you got to see Dr. Fives. And I've been staring at the copy for, you know, a good while and going, that cover is just amazing with, you know, you know, with him with his mask off, you know, and you just see his skull head and stuff. And it was like, but I'd always been kind of afraid to rent it, you know, and then, but I was like, well, it's Vincent Price. I mean, but it looked kind of cheesy at the same time. And I was, wasn't sure. And then I rented it and I was just like, well, I'm going to see this movie about 10 times in the next year, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, I became a huge Fives fan. And then I thought there was a second movie and I was like, what? <laughs> you know, it's like Vincent Price I'd been into even as a kid, because he was all over television in the seventies, all over television, game shows everywhere, you know, variety shows. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I knew full well who he was and what he did. Uh, but yeah, in the 80s was a big time for me for catching up with most of his, you know, most of his films. And I think, I think Fives is, I think it's at the top of that list. So uh, I, I, it's probably my favorite performance by him. I might agree with you. I, I, I am trying to think if there's anything I like better. Um, I really, really enjoy Mask of the Red Death. I think that movie is fantastic, but this one is definitely just a lot of fun, kind of like yeah. hits all of the, the satisfying marks. And if, if it's not his best performance, this is the coolest movie he was ever in. 
Yeah. Yeah, I would say this is the coolest movie he was ever in. Okay. This is a, this, this movie is, I mean, I know we use this term a lot for when we you and I get into like things that means, oh, it's groovy, right? This is groovy. This movie defines groovy as far as I'm concerned. Well, yeah, a lot of that, of course, coming from director, I, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Robert uh, Fust? I'm, it's, I'm guessing it's Fust, but Fust? I've never heard it actually pronounced by anybody, but I'd say Fust. Okay, so yeah, he, of course, at this time would have been probably best known for the Avengers television series. He, he also, I think before he did this, he did the first Count Yorga movie. Did he? Um, yeah, he was the director of those films. Oh, um, yeah. Okay, I did not realize he directed those. Well, that's a big connection with the second film because Robert Quarry is in the second Dr. Fives movie. And yeah. Robert Quarry is the star of the Count Yorga films. I haven't seen Count Yorga in a long time and I don't think I realized that he was directing it i i got to go back and revisit that and its sequel but of course he also did a movie i know you're fond of and i like quite a bit as well uh and soon the darkness yes i i, I really like that movie stylistically not very similar to fives but it's a pretty pretty cool movie yes and it has been since remake uh, i have not seen the remake yeah uh with uh, amber heard uh i think was the star of that like about maybe 10 years ago, they did a version of it, which was, which was well done. I mean, it's, it's a good version, but it's not as good as the first one. I don't think. Yeah. Amber Heard and Carl Urban. I did not realize. Yeah. Oh yes. Carl Urban. Yeah. Man, I'm, uh, I am slipping. <laughs> there's stuff. I'm just, there's too much stuff to keep up on. Well, to be fair, it was before Carl Urban was really, you know, big. So. Well, I mean, this would have been after, certainly after Lord of the Rings and after Star Trek. Yeah, honestly, when I think of Lord of the Rings, I don't think of Carl Urban. So no, <laughs> I know he's but in. When yeah. he was in Star Trek, that was all I, I knew him from was Lord of the Rings. Was this after Star Trek, though? Uh, Star Trek was 2009, and this is 2010. Okay, so pretty close, though. Okay. Anyway, getting off track. Uh, yeah, no, Groovy, and it has like a real fun sense of style. There's a real real nice art deco look to everything it is set in the 20s it's um, art art deco crossed with art nouveau it's there's both in the okay it, some scenes it's both together you know so because it's easy to go oh yeah it's art deco but there's a lot of rounded lines in there and things like that that's not art deco it's it's because art art nouveau was the movement before art deco there's similarities between the two but one there's a basic design differences in in and uh, Art Nouveau is more floral, has a lot of more rounded lines, whereas Art Deco tends to be straighter and zigzaggy. So it is set, I believe it, it I, I don't think it says it in the movie proper, but through context clues and everything, it's it's the 20s, correct? Um, oh no, it, it does say it because his wife died in the early 20s. So of course the movie is, it takes place in the, well, later than that. The humor, like I said, I, I kept going back to the humor is is really fun. It has some really cool editing. The costumes are great. Uh, Volnavia looks amazing, even though that's all she does is she kind of stands around and poses a little bit in the background. And, you know, she's completely silent. He uh, speaks a little bit. Um, well, I, I think we should get into Volnavia a little bit later because there's a lot about her that is part of what makes I mean, a big part of what makes this movie so cool. Yes. Okay. I, I feel Volnavia is actually the certainly the most enigmatic character in the films. I mean, but he, she's also I, I think she's 
the most interesting, even more than fives. I think fives, fives is uh, when you get down to the machinations behind what he does, he's kind of basic character. I mean, he's a, he's a revenge driven, you know, character, but, and yeah, he does all these murders and stuff, but there's Volnavia is a com- almost a complete cipher. You don't know what's going on with her. You don't know if she's human. You don't know if she's like one of his automatons because we haven't gotten into that yet is that he, he does a lot with clockworks, uh, clockwork mechanisms. And there's a lot about Volnavia that is never explained, not in the script, not in the movies, not even like in interviews. <laughs> like nobody really knows what she is. Well, we can get into it later when we talk about that, but have you read any of the Dr. Fibes books? So I have not. I, I know there were novelizations for both of the films that were around in the 70s, and I never, even though I ran into them, I never was smart enough to pick one up. And I know, I know this, uh, one, of the, one of the two screenwriters uh, has since written uh, three other books to go along with the two novelizations he did. Uh, yes. So, and one of them is about Volnavia. I did not read that book. I did not read any of the plot of it. I don't right. know what he goes into there, but um, it, I did. I keep forgetting. I do want to read those books. But it, <laughs> I, but I, it's all stuff that he created after these movies. So, yeah. And so, yeah, I I want to get to those eventually. I mean, I want to read those eventually, and and I just you know haven't gotten to them yet. Um, I, but yeah, she is a just endlessly fascinating to me when i watch the movies i'm just like in awe of everything going on with her or everything that's in my head that might be going on with her yeah and i i had the same thought this time watching it I, I don't know how many times i've seen this before i've seen it a bunch but this last time watching it i really did spend a lot of time thinking about volnavia and what her whole deal is how she met dr fives what their relationship is because he's an older man and tooling around with this like very attractive younger woman who is very i mean she's never provocatively dressed but she's elegantly dressed she's meant to be oh she's a fashion plate she's like yeah she has these elaborate costumes and she she doesn't just like appear in scenes she makes entrances she makes these grand gestures. He's playing music on the organ and she walks in and she like does this flourish with her, with her gown and, and does these big white arms and then drifts down the stairs in a very stylish fashion, you know, in time to the music. And there's nobody except for the viewer of the movie watching this, you know, they're in this place with a bunch of clockwork musicians and they're the only audience, you know, it's, it's, this grand thing going on and the only people who see it are the people that are actually taking part in it. It's like they're practicing a, like a, a big play or something like that without an audience, but there never will be an audience except for, you know, the, the movie camera. It's ridiculous how, how just how grand eloquent everything is, you know? Yes. Which I love in this movie. Um, I, we're, I, I'm, there's going to be bleed through with our discussion of each movie. Um, I love it in this movie. Not so much in the next one, which we'll get to. Well, the next one, a lot of problems. <laughs> yeah. So, but let's, let's, let's talk about the first perfect one. So, so Volnavia, because I guess we're, we're talking about her. We can come back to if we have more we want to say. Sure I, sure. I did spend a lot of time in this movie thinking what their relationship was, because 
they they dance they're very they seem very close and comfortable with each other even though she's not speaking but you never get the sense that <laughs> vincent price like there's anything unseemly going on there wouldn't be because his obsession in the film is getting revenge for his dead wife and yes, he but wants then, to bring his dead back to but he wants to bring her back to life Yes, but then you, so, well, wait, he doesn't want to bring her back until the sequel. That's not mentioned in the first movie. Well, Correct? he wants to be with her in in he wants no, he wants to be with her forever in death though. And yeah. she's he still has her body. And so it's it's a big thing for him to be with her forever. Um but first he wants to get revenge for her death. But yes, you are correct. The second movie is where they uh they they have they have all the stuff where they they're searching for eternal life, but regardless, his obsession is on his wife and on the revenge for her. But you see nothing of a romantic uh, suggestion involving Volnavia. Volnavia is his servant, and possibly daughter, possibly. I mean, we don't. I mean, not by Carolyn Monroe, who plays his dead wife. Um, so i mean it would be the same age but you know um but he, he he she might be a daughter from the previous wife uh, we in this film we don't know we don't get a hint of it of what her origins are i honestly believe that he that she's like an android but that she's yeah. a clockwork mechanism but like the ultimate clockwork mechanism I, but i also have questions about whether he actually created these clockwork mechanisms so would he have created her because in the film he goes to a goldsmith to create the necklaces so he's obviously for for me he's he's like he's like contracting for all these devices that he's having built for him so i don't know if he's actually like a, a creator of clockworks or not but he has clockwork mechanisms it's a yet another unanswered question i mean this is this is all you know, just us kind of like throwing out theories on, on, on the part of the characters. Well, I believe I, I did read something according to William Goldstein, one of the screenwriters, um, the guy who wrote all the books. In the original conception, Volnavia was an automaton. Uh, but they that it went through many rewrites and, you know, they cast an actual person for the role. Right. It, yeah. It looks like a person. It, it had been suggested. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He had suggested that. But that was a very early script. Yeah, and it it went through several revisions before they got to the film, which it was. Uh, so this was written by William Goldstein and James Whitten, or Whiten, though apparently Robert Fust, Robert Fust, uh, extensively rewrote the film. Right, it went through other hands at AIP, American International Pictures. They had a their their regular script editor uh, go over it also, and then and then Fust changed a whole lot of that what that guy had written also. Um, but yeah, but the the original screenwriters they had this script kicking around for like half a decade, more than that actually. This was this was like a labor of love for them, which is why Goldstein has remained close to the character ever since because he's he's like very very much has a sense of ownership of this character. Well, yeah, which is a shame he wasn't along for any of the sequel. I guess he he wrote the novelization of it, but um, he had nothing to do with the movie as far as I could see. So there's a bunch of cameos in this film, uh, which is it kind of just like 
characters come in for one scene. Obviously, the doctors. Joseph Cotton is probably the biggest name in this movie alongside Vincent Price. Well, he's not. He's he's the other. He's the co-lead in it. I mean, yeah, yeah. I didn't mean to imply he was. I was just kind of trying to go through. There's like a bunch of big names in it. Probably the most recognizable aside from Joseph Cotton or Vincent Price is is Terry Thomas. And absolutely. He's one of the actors who came in and did one day of work on this film. Uh, Beryl Reed and Hugh, Hugh Griffith also did very small parts in it. They're the bigger names that were kind of floating around in it also. And Terry Thomas is one of the doctors uh, that Fives is trying to kill. His death scene, it, it, it is the one that probably disturbed me the most in this. It's creepy. Aside from, we're going ahead, going ahead here, but um, Fives' death at the end or how he kills himself at the end, basically gives himself a blood transfusion with formaldehyde while he's alive. Embalming fluid. Yeah. Embalming fluid, sorry. You don't see any of it. You just see the, the blood going out and then the from uh, the embalming fluid coming in. And you don't see it like going in or out of his body. You don't see his reaction to it. But just that idea is so, it, it's so gross to me. But uh, Terry Thomas. Yeah his death is is really creepy because they are slowly bleeding him out and he's not giving up any fight he's just like what's going on here but it it seems to last for a very long time they do it very slowly oh yeah yeah he is conscious it, it's clearly at least several hours um i thought at first that it it actually ha- took place over the entire night because there's a shot while fives is doing that of volnavia playing the violin outside and it's daylight, but I think that's just like an editing mistake because later he's still alive and it's it's clearly night out. He, I think they say even he died around like one thirty two in the morning or something like that. Right. Uh, but I think but, we should mention at this point that the, the the deaths the the deaths are that Fives uh, 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 creates in the film are based on the uh, the biblical curses on the Pharaoh. Yes. So that one, the Terry Thomas one is supposed to be the blood curse, but there's like bats and rats and, you know, all sorts of crazy things in the film. And they're not necessarily like the frogs one. The frog one is very tenuous to frogs. You know, it's a, a guy in a frog mask, you know, basically. But it's, you know, it, it's it's very humorous how tie these into the biblical curses. It's it's uh, the, the plagues. It's a lot of a lot of the fun of the movie is like, okay, which one are they going to get to next? Some of them are made up just because they would have been hard to to actual actually film, like the plague of gnats and the plague of flies. They they turned into the bats and the rats in the movie just because they would have been they, they their reasoning would have been too hard to film those. I, I got to say the the bat the bat murder which starts the film that's like the first one in the film uh, the bat murder kind of doesn't work for me because the bats are too cute yeah they're flying foxes they're flying foxes and they're adorable looking and so you see this flying fox and i don't i know a lot of people are really creeped out by bats i'm not but if they're going to use a bat you'd think they'd use the face at least the face for a close-up of a vampire bat or something like that but they got this little flying fox crawling up the guy's body and he just and they have a close-up of the face and you just go oh and it's like well those bats aren't going to kill a guy. They're not going to like bite and claw him to death and all that stuff. You know, it, it just it doesn't, even on their worst day, they're not going to do that, you know, but it's like, but they do mention, oh, well, we, we're going to have him tested for rabies and all that stuff. So, 
but even then rabies wouldn't kill the guy like in minutes (laughs) no but they actually do have one of the police officers says that he saw it in um in the philippines or something he saw them he's like they'll strip the flesh right off your bones they will so they do say that they they would kill you they say that but we know look at flying foxes they're not going to do that that was my point was that that i have that particular bat Somebody who knows bats is going to go oh that bat's not going to do anything <laughs> you know it's like i have the same problem you did is with the bats and also with the rats the plague of rats because i i really like rats i used to have rats and i know that they are very like i just find them adorable i think they're really cute they're very clean animals they're very intelligent of course we know that and so every time i see them in a movie especially in movies where they try to dirty them up, they put like gel in their fur or something. All I can see is like, oh, they're so cute. They're like rats. So I have that problem like when he, when the pilot, Dr. Kitaj was uh, flying, but I mean, starving rats, I mean, they would bite at you. That would be a, a threat, especially in a plane. So I get that. Anytime they use these animals that are, the, that are quote unquote vermin that are supposed to be killing people, I do feel a little uh, uh, like if they show them, I'm like, oh, they're not that bad. I'm not going to agree on the rat. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, uh, they are adorable animals. You want to talk about the clockwork wizards? Yeah. Okay. Uh, when I first saw this, I thought stupidly, of course, <laughs> that they were actually meant to be playing the instruments that he had created these to be playing instruments. And then, I, you know, every time I've watched it since, I'm like, no, they're not even trying to make you think they're playing music. They're clearly just <laughs> supposed to be miming. Yeah, it, it's it's a it's like a it's a wind up mechanism, and they're just like you know it's like any robotic, you know, musical toy. Like you see the guy playing piano, flapping the keys with his hands, you know. Yeah. So like, but there's like a creepy vibe. Yeah, it just adds to Fives' general style. Like everything is such a production with him, and it works for me in this movie. I love it all. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I I I just love when the movie starts and he's playing that organ, right? And you just see the back of him because you don't see his face for a good while. You know, he's got, because when he does come down, he's got the hood on and all that stuff. And, uh, and, and you don't see his real face for a really long time. But I mean, you also don't see his, his masked face either, um, which we should probably talk about too. But at the very beginning, there's that kind of glass atrium that's around his, ar- around the organ area at the top of the stairs. And every time I see that with the, with the, the trees in the background and all that, it always reminds me of the conservatory in the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland, where there's the skeleton and he's trying to push open his coffin. He's saying, let me out of here, let me out of oh, here. Oh, yeah. And it looks so much like that area. It's like, it's really cool. And, and so, yeah, I've always just made that connection when I watched it. When I actually, I saw this movie long before I ever went to Disneyland, because I didn't go to Disneyland until I was 30. So I've definitely made up for it since then. But, um, but yeah, the first time I was on the Haunted Mansion, I immediately flashed on Dr. Fives because that's what that back looked like to me. Uh, interesting. I, I'll have to keep an eye out for that next time I go through. Uh, who knows long, uh, when that will be, though. But hopefully soon, things are getting back to a little bit of normal and hopefully it keeps going that way. I, I did get to ride. I did get to ride the new version of it, the updated version. They had some new stuff on it. So it was very cool. Oh, yeah. I uh, saw just a, just a few changes. You got to go to Disney recently and we should all say everybody you've been fully vaccinated so yes um, just absolutely and it was a it was a 
it was a cast member preview because my wife still works there. I don't anymore at the current moment, but my wife still works there and uh, behind the scenes, but it was a cast preview and we did, you know, we did do the haunted mansion, uh, but before the end of the day and like a few things were updated. It's mostly the same. It's, it's a lot. I mean, they had months and months and months to clean the thing. So it's, you know, it's very bright and gorgeous looking. I mean, it's dark of course, but I mean, everything's like, the ghosts are really, really like cleaned up and stuff. So everything's just sharp, you know? Oh, um, nice. And they added color to like some of the ghosts in the cemetery. Like they usually come out like kind of greenish and there's a lot of purple added to them now and stuff. So they're actually more noticeable now. Cause that's always been kind of a complaint of mine is that the ghosts are very hard to see sometimes. And, uh, um, but yeah, they're very, very in your face now. So. Oh man, I can't wait to get back there again. Uh, eventually soon yes anyway sorry that's a digression but no no you're fine you're fine uh so i said that terry thomas's death is the one that that creeped me out the most uh and he's such a, a dirty old man in this movie i mean i guess all he's doing is drinking and watching a a very primitive stag film yeah what i love is when uh, the, uh, is the maid who comes in or is that she and she's like and he and she's standing on the other side of the of the movie screen that he's watching, so she doesn't see the movie. And she asks, "What's this for?" And he says, "Oh, it's uh, used for keeping out drafts." <laughs> yeah, it, it's a silly scene, uh, but then he just the way he reacts to Volnavia comes in and kind of like distracts him, and then Fibes starts to remove his blood, and he just never puts up a fight. It's so weird. That's the one that creeped me out the most. The one that. I wish we had gotten just a little bit more set up for it or, or a little bit more explanation for it is uh, I can't remember the character's name, but the guy who gets impaled by the unicorn. Oh, that that's uh, uh, that's an amazing that's the funniest scene in the movie. And they did they did film supposedly the cat. The unicorn head is catapulted by fives and it like pins this guy through a door basically it goes through his body the horn goes through his body and goes through the door and pins him to it and then they are unscrewing the guy they're unscrewing the the unicorn head from the door but in the you see it in the background in this gentleman's club you just see this guy's legs going up in the air and coming down so they're, they're, they're unscrewing his entire body you know it's just a sight gag that's just brilliant but apparently they did they did film a, a, I guess it was a shot filmed of the actual catapult and in editing, they decided it worked better with, with just being a surprise. Oh, I think it worked great. Yeah. It's, it's brilliant, but it sure is shocking. I mean, it's like, what? No, I think it was the right choice to not show the buildup to it. But then afterwards you only get somebody saying like appears to have been catapulted and I just would have yep. liked like after that little scene, a brief intercut of, Fibes and Volnavia, like just walking away or something. Yeah, they cut all that out. Yeah, but I, I, I do like the idea that you don't realize it's going to happen right then. You, you think it's, you know, it's coming, but you think it's going to be a little bit later that they're setting up where the actual murder is going to take place. Um, it's a really, it, it is really a, a great scene and really well done. Well, there's a, there's a character in the, so there's a, um, the necklaces so each of the each of the each of the uh each time that fives does one of the murders he's wearing a necklace that has a, a hebrew letter or the hebrew you know in, in hebrew it has 
the the particular curse that he's representing with the murder. And then when he finishes the murder, he takes it off and he puts it on uh, a wax head of the of the uh, victim and then melts their face, basically. Yeah, and the, the cops figure it out because he accidentally drops the necklace. He drops one of one the, the amulet. But the, the goldsmith who creates the amulets, I don't know if you know this, but that actor is Aubrey Woods. And the same, not a particularly famous actor, but the same year as Dr. Fives, he was in another movie. He is the candy shop owner in Willy Wonka who sings the Candyman for the first time. The gold, wait. The, the guy, the jeweler, yes. That's Aubrey Woods. And he is the guy who sings the Candyman in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I, uh, I'm trying to picture that in my head. And... You know, when you were talking about Gold, like Willy Wonka, I was thinking it was the the cop, Inspector Trout, because I can't see him in that role. Why am I not picturing it? I got to, huh. I didn't mean to floor you there. Yeah, sorry, sorry. I have seen that movie a ton, of course. Like, that movie's been with me my entire life, pretty much. I, uh... huh, interesting. Okay. And he was he was also in the version of Wuthering Heights that Robert Foose directed before Bonwell Doctor Fives. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Wuthering Heights with uh, Timothy Dalton in it. It was uh, apparently a big hit, and got and and got and got him the job of directing Doctor Fives. One little detail I noticed, I think this time, more that when you know in regards to those wax faces. He's got them in his lair. They're circled around. The first time you see them, I was trying to get a good look at it because you only see them in the background. It looked like one of the faces had been melted. And I was thinking, oh, weird. I wonder if they just shot this out of order, forgetting the fact that one of the murders happens before the movie even begins. So Correct. I I thought, like, it's not remarked upon. You just find out later that the cop is like, oh, this reminds me of this murder last week that... Uh, you realize, oh yeah, okay. So Fives has already started his plan. We're coming in the middle. He's already started, uh, which I, I I thought was a, a nice little background detail. Yeah, that's pretty cool. We should talk a little bit about the cops. Yeah, the cops are hilarious. Uh, Inspector Trout, the the interplay he has with the police superintendent uh, Waverly is just hilarious through the entire film, because Waverly he's uh he's very blustery. And he doesn't really want, he doesn't really want the right answer. He just wants an answer. You know, so as long as you like satisfy him in some small fashion, he like moves on. You know, he just, he just wants, he wants his, his, what he's thinking echoed. And he's just very blustery. And, and he's like this kind of like, probably has little guy, you know, syndrome or whatever. And then it just constantly leaves uh, uh, Inspector Trout like frustrated, you know, <laughs> he like holds his head in his hands and stuff all the time. Um, but their interplay is just, you know, they're, they're the comedy relief in the film, really. Yeah, the, the cops are, the, the moment I realized this was going to be a movie, the first time I watched this, the moment I realized this movie was going to be a delight was the cops, when they're, bagging the bats from the first on-screen murder um and the and inspector trout asks for his partner calls for something he's like up here and the camera pans to the left and you realize there's been a cop on top of the bureau 
like standing on top of the or not standing like crouched on top of the closet this entire scene and it's such a an undignified pose and such a kind of a not a big joke but a humorous reveal the way it's handled i uh I was like, okay, this movie knows what sense of humor it's going for. I'm in good hands and I'm going to have a good time with this one. You know, there's another bit with the cops where they've been going through all the cases, you know, the possible cases where they're trying to figure out who the murderer is. And they go, they have a pile of 1,200 cases, right? And they have these like two giant stacks of paper, right? And, 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 and it says, we, so we went through the 1,200 cases and we got down to 37. And the pile of 37 cases is about half the size of the 1200 cases. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like, there's a little kind of a disparity there in size. Are these really, really thick piles of I mean, are these really thick cases? Cause they don't look any thicker than the other cases, but 37 to 1200, <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> and I just thought that was very funny. I don't know if that was intentional, but it was very, very funny. So I think I think there's one more thing we should talk about before we move on from this one uh, to the sequel is um, uh, Joseph Cotton in this movie. Oh, he's magnificent. He's really great. Uh, he seems to not like he he seems kind of divorced from any of the comedic moments in the movie. He's the heavy lifting of the the dramatics. Yeah, and I really love how his storyline plays out with death of the firstborn and it is it is kind of funny that nobody thinks that it, the death of the firstborn could refer to his son because they get they ask him like well death of the firstborn he's like no it can't be me um my i've got my i've got an older brother and then the cop is like huh well what about your kid and then they suddenly realize so that's yeah. kind of funny i i really like the dramatics at play there it, that it, it suddenly does get very serious and he does it handles it very well vincent price and joseph cotton were very very close they both worked for orson wells uh, when they did uh, mercury theater on the air back in the late 30s and they were very close from that time on but they didn't work together until if, from the time they're on mercury theater in the late 30s from 1939 to 1971 they did not work together in anything so this was the first thing they did together since then. And so, but they've been very, very close in Hollywood all those years. And so Price actually convinced Cotton to do horror films. He said, because you're getting older, you're not going to get leading roles anymore. They're going to be far and few between, but where you can make some money is doing horror movies because they always need older actors to play, you know, whatever, you know. And it's, it's quick work, you know, you can go in and get your parts done in a couple of days and then you make some money. And that's how you can prolong your career. And so Cotton took him up on it. And uh, it was right after this that he did Baron Blood. <laughs> he had a really terrible experience on that thing. But yeah, it was, it's, uh, I guess Joseph Cotton was upset that Vincent Price didn't have to uh, say any of his lines on the set. <laughs> because all of all, his entire part was recorded you know you know ADR right so he, he didn't actually have to like say his lines because he has the mask on and stuff and so he said he said well why do I have to memorize my lines and and uh and then Vincent Price uh said well I have memorized all your lines <laughs> it's like because what Vincent Price did anytime it did a movie is he memorized the entire script and so he could he could recite anybody's lines back to them so if like Joseph Cotton got caught, 
Price could actually tell him what the line was, which, you know, my wife said, being an actor, my wife said, yeah, I'm sure he made some really, didn't make a lot of friends with being able to do that on the set. Because <laughs> like, other, actor, other actors hate it when they're being told their lines by other actors, you know. But apparently, you know, everybody loved Price. So, I mean, well, almost everybody. We'll get into that in the next movie. But yeah, Cotton, uh, from what I understand, had a delight, delightful time working with Price on this movie. With Fives' mask, because he was injured in a car accident, and when he takes it off, his face is just basically a skull, uh, fused skin and, and exposed jawline and everything. Um, right. I, and, and so he speaks with that voice box. So he is silent. He is just kind of like, you can see his mouth working, though. I think that's a great... That's a cool touch. A yeah. Great performative touch. He, from he wears makeup over his face, over his skull face. He wears makeup, like he like plasters little bits of, of, of skin and, or, you know, fake skin and stuff. But yeah, he does make, a, he does have like a life mask kind of thing that he puts over his, his, his now empty, empty face. And then, yeah, you do see his mouth moving under, under it, which is it's just a, so creepy looking. <laughs> it's, it's great. And then I love the touch of how he eats. He's got like a little port in the back of his neck that he just like <laughs> tears, and then you see him pouring a drink down the back of his neck. It, it this movie is great. I I'm I'm a big fan of this one. So there is something about the music in this movie because this movie takes place in the mid twenties, in the mid nineteen twenties, and the music in it. And I guess maybe you need to know music to know this, but. There's a couple of things they use somewhere over the rainbow in this film. Yes, they also use it in the next movie. Also, somewhere over the rainbow was written for the Wizard of Oz, and it was written <laughs> in yeah. yeah. Thirteen years after this movie takes place is when that movie, that song came out. It wasn't even an, a twinkle in the eye of Harold Arlen when he wrote that song um, at, at the time of this movie. But there, there's also, I don't know if it's actually Sinatra. It says on IMDb, it's that Sinatra singing it. I don't, I think it's somebody doing Sinatra. But One More for My Baby and One More for the Road was written in 1943. And they do it in this movie. Uh, and there's, uh, some of the songs are correct. Um, I mean, th there's a couple songs that were written by the time this was, but the bulk of the songs in this movie were not of the period, which is, you know, so either Fives is like Nostradamus and has foreseen all these songs being written or uh, they just, you know, didn't really care if anybody thought they came from the 1920s or not. But for somebody that, you know, pays attention to music, it's like, it's a little annoying. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, there's one thing I meant to look up and I'm kind of trying to search for it now in regards to the music. I saw in the credits, uh, Darktown Strutter's Ball, as sung by Paul Freeze. Yes, it's Paul Freeze singing it in the masked ball section. Okay, okay. That, I, I couldn't pick it out when I was watching the movie, and then afterwards I saw his name in the credit. I meant to go back. And, and Darktown Strutter's Ball was written in 1917, so it's appropriate for the 1920 setting. Also... Should we mention Carolyn Monroe <laughs> appearing in the background of this film? Well, as... absolutely, because I, I've been in love with Carolyn Monroe since I was a kid. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, she is in this movie, but she's also not in this movie. So she, you see her pictures all through the film, and she's also, you see her body at the end of the film. But she, she's really not in it, you know? <laughs> 
No, no. She's she plays Vincent Price's or Dr. Fibes's dead wife. All the photos are Carolyn Monroe. Was that Carolyn Monroe at the end? I didn't think it was. There's a close up and I, there's her there's her face and it totally looks like her. So unless they found somebody who looks just like her, I don't know. Okay. But I don't know why they wouldn't just have it down. But she's not in the credits except for photos. But when you get the close up of her, I so every time I watch it, I can go, is that Carolyn Monroe? And I go, it always looks like her. So there, there is another, uh, oh, there's another scene that just strikes me as so funny in this movie. And it's a moment where Fives gets to be funny. Fives and Volnavia get to be funny. I mean, outright funny. And it's when they're, um, Volnavia brings him a batch of Brussels sprouts because yeah. they want to use them to a locust. They want to make the little goo liquid that they're going to pour on uh, the nurse's face and <laughs> brings him this basket of Brussels sprouts. And you think, oh, all the Brussels sprouts, they're, they're supposed to attract locusts. Let's just throw them all in the pot. No. Fives has to be really finicky and pick out one by one which ones go in and which ones get thrown out. And he's just making these big flourishes with his hand. You know, like, yes, no, yes, no. He's not saying yes, no, but he's doing this kind of. And I laugh so hard when I watch that. Well, anything more? Do you have anything more you want to discuss about Dr. Fives? A couple of things. So like the final scene with the doctor's son, that one particularly reminds me of the puzzles in the Saw series. Oh, yes. There are consequences to every action in that in that sequence. And it's like, you know, it's it's like, I mean, it, 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 you can go back and say, well, it's like the uh, the circular Saw scenes, the old silent movies, you know, where they had the girl tied to the, you know, tied to the table and stuff. But it's along that same lines. But this one, is a little more intricate with the acid dripping down and he has six minutes to, be, to free his son from the lock and all that stuff. Yeah, but the key to the lock is hidden inside the, the kid's heart or it's, it's near his heart. So the doctor has to cut open his son to get the key. That such, that just so reminds me of the Saw series. It's, it's ridiculous. But this film in general, I cannot, I mean, directly, I cannot imagine that this film didn't inform later productions in the 1970s like rocky horror picture show and phantom of the paradise mm, yeah those I two thought... in particular just the uses that okay when the phantom of the paradise the usages of masks and just like a lot of the just kind of like crazy actions in the film just a general look and then rocky horror picture show the operating room scene with the with you know where they're where Frank and Ferner is doing, you know, I'm gonna make you a man and all that stuff. But he's doing this big production number. Now there, there's an audience, but it, it's a similar setup. There's like this little kind of kind of you know balcony where people can like walk around and stuff. In fives, there's no people in there, but there are like elaborate set changes that are going on and things like this that Volmavia must be doing on her own, you know. It's like I can't imagine the amount of time she takes in costume and set changes every day. And speaking of, this is this is her death scene in the movie is during the operation. Yeah, and that's going to play into the next movie because it's very, very strange because that leads me to question more about Volnavia once you get to the second movie. But yeah, uh, she gets the um, gets her face destroyed by acid at the end of this film. When she returns unscathed in the sequel, it's like, well, oh. she's played by a different actress. Yeah, so I was about then, to say. Then the question is, are there more than one Volnavia? Oh. Does he have like a series of Volnavias? 
or maybe Belnavia really is human. And but then the second movie really makes you question whether she's human because there's more stuff in that one that where it's just like, is she like this robot? You know, it's like, but you never really see her like totally destroyed in this movie. So, but she does scream. That's the only time she makes a noise in the entire film is she screams. It must be exhausting being Dr. Fives yeah. because not only, not only does he have to have plot out a series of intricately designed murders, but he also has to meet regularly with Volnavia to dance in his private ballroom, all, all presumably for his entertainment, but he does these giant production numbers. Uh, or is this whole thing like ritual? Like, is this part of their like everyday pattern is, you know, is, is he just, I mean, is this a one-off where they're doing this dance or does he do this every single day with her? That's how they start the morning, right? Yeah. <laughs> I get the impression that it is a daily thing or nightly or morningly or that they're, I got the impression from all of their interactions that they're they're just having fun when it's just them together. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, no, I genuinely think that they're having a ball. But his organ playing seems to be not just realist, uh, ritualistic in nature, but he also uses for uses it for transport inside his own house. So when he's playing the organ, that thing moves up and down and goes to other floors. Yeah, you know, it's like it's it's just you know stunning just how intricate his life is. Well, he's got vengeance, which is powering him. Yeah, that's an amazing engine. Yes. Okay, so uh, that's I think going to do it for the abominable Doctor Fibes. We will be back in just a moment for Doctor Fibes rises again. He lives. I want, but before we get going here, I just I just want to say I looked up Count Yorga and its sequel, and I had the wrong Robert. It's Robert Kelgen who actually produced, uh, directed those movies. I thought it was Foost because Robert Quarry is in this movie, and I thought that was the connection. So, yeah, I had the wrong director. So, sorry about that. Made a big mistake. He lives. From the depths of this unholy tomb, the Avenger rises. The abominable Dr. Fives, the most deadly mastermind of all crime. Specialist in the fine art of bizarre murder, each more different, each more devilish than the last. The Scorpions embrace. You bloody man! The Eagles caress. <laughs> The Sausage Machine. The One Hand Persuader. Hackett. He has nothing to say, sir. Touche, Dr. Fibes. And as another victim falls, the world awaits your next blow of vengeance. Only one man, only one menace, only one diabolical mind could create such chilling terror. That's not a common thief, sir. Then, Inspector, we are faced with an impossible task. Well, there's no force in all the world could win a fight against such a supreme opponent. Run, but you can't escape him. He 
he'll find you. Scream, but no one will hear you. Dr. Fives Rises Again was released in 1972, one year after the previous film, though set three years after those events. In this one, Dr. Fives resurrects himself as part of a plan to bring his beloved Victoria back from the dead. Together with Volnavia, also mysteriously returned to the land of the living, Fives travels to Egypt to find the fabled River of Life. But it's a race against time and the wealthy Darius Biederbeck who is also set on finding the river to extend his already supernaturally long life. Now this one, I have not seen nearly as much as I've seen the original Dr. Fibes. When it came out on DVD, I was super excited because of how much I loved the original Abongle. I think they might've come out together, but I just didn't see them at Suncoast at the same time. Uh, but I watched it, I was so disappointed. It, it, for years, I considered this to be the worst horror sequel I'd ever seen. It would be, I just hated this movie so much. Um, I never revisited it until it came out on that Blu-ray set that uh, Scream Factory put out, the Vincent Price collections. I got all those and I figured I'd give it a new shot. I liked it a lot more the last time I watched it. I kind of like watched it going, well, I was really harsh on this movie. There's still a lot to like here. And, and this is still only the third time I've seen it. And I kind of fell somewhere in the middle of the hating it and finding parts of it okay. Uh, I am not a fan of this movie. I still think parts of it are cool, but I, I am not a fan. What do you think? I think there's a lot of good stuff in this movie. I think it adds to the characters in interesting ways, but I would say this movie is half as good as the first one. So I, I, I think it's, I, I don't think it's like a bad film, but I think it's a very disappointing return uh, after that incredible first movie. Yeah, I think what I hated about it, and I, I'm a little bit less hateful towards it now, is how much it takes Fibes and makes him an like an outright villain. Because he, he has nothing motivating him here. He has no vengeance. He's not really... Well, he he, he does have something motivating him and that's getting to the getting to the river of life that's there's definitely something motivating him but but there's no motivation behind the murders no that's true that's what i mean he's he's motivated to get to the to the river of life but it is not presented as an either or like um robert quarry plays darius biederbeck who is in the movie we we find out he's he's been alive for at least 100 years right but we find out we find out later he's been alive for much longer than a hundred years. Uh, but we just know that he's been using this, this uh, serum to keep himself young. And he is trying to find this river of life. It's going to, it's going to be opened for a very brief moment in time. Um, because he's running out of serum. Yeah. And it's not, it's not presented as an either or that only one of them can use the river of life. It, it seems like, they could both go through, right? Uh, but but Fibes is just so hateful to everybody. He kills everybody that comes near him, whether or not they're really a threat to him, whether or not they're trying to stop him. Most people in the movie are not trying to stop him; they're just in his way, and he he kills them. And 
where in the first movie, the over-the-top Rube Goldberg devices, which I, it's, it is kind of a misnomer. I don't mean to imply that they're really complicated. I just mean they're like, they're over-the-top contraptions you're using to kill these people. There is one murder that is definitely kind of, definitely sort of falls into the Rube Goldberg description, but we'll get to that. Okay. Uh, I'm just saying in this, in this, the first movie, the over-the-top manner of the movies, it was vengeance. There was passion behind it. There was a reason for him to do that. In this one, he's killing random underlings. He's killing people who just happen to be in the vicinity of him in these really over-the-top ways. And it just seems really cruel. There's no, like, fun to it after a while because it's just like, <laughs> what did these guys do to you? It, it just, it seems a little bit more mean-spirited than the first movie. It is. It is definitely more mean-spirited. I mean, honestly, this film could be retitled Dr. Fives is a big dick. <laughs> so I didn't I didn't like it as much. I, like it, it's not as fun to me. It's not as satisfying. The humor, the humor hits on a couple levels, but it's still it still didn't it still wasn't like right there for me. But there's a, aside from a couple of scenes, which we'll get to. Like I like Terry Thomas's cameo. I like the acting between the cops. Well, we did mention that a couple of the actors from the first film oh, yes. are different characters in this film. Terry Thomas. Griffith play completely different characters. Yes, and other characters play the same characters, and other actors play returning characters. It's a it's a mix. Yes, because the cops Waverly and Trout are back, and way out of their jurisdiction. Eventually, when they get to Egypt, I don't know what they're expecting to do. I, I will say this film is, be, and mainly because of them, but I would say this film is more. Uh, comedy oriented than the first one it's meaner but there's more outright comedy and a lot of it falls flat yeah well like like the fact that they've gone they're they're from scotland yard they've gone to egypt to hunt down fives uh they keep talking about fives is back and he always turns up like a bad penny or we can't you can't keep fives down which surprised me because to them this is the second time they've dealt they've dealt with dr fives like they're not He's not a villain who keeps coming back to torment them. They, they just know him from the series of murders three years earlier. Something at the very beginning of the film, the, uh, the, there's a narration where they do kind of a recap of what happened in the first movie. But that narration is Gary Owens, who uh, was from Laugh-In. He was, he, was he was the radio guy on Laugh-In who would announce the show. And so he's very famous for that. But he was also the voice of Space Ghost. Oh, really? Yes. Awesome. I, that's a connection I would not have known of. The original voice of Space Ghost, not the... Yeah, not, not Coast to Coast. Coast. Yeah, but I was going to say, like, to the, the strangeness of the humor that these, these two Scotland Yard inspectors have gone to Egypt and are kind of trekking through the desert, not really knowing where they're going to go. <laughs> they get... They luck upon uh, Biederbeck's camp. They know Fives is in the mountain. And yet they won't go search the mountain because they don't have a warrant. Yeah. Like we, we can't just go searching. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which it's so silly. It It's so dumb. And I, I actually. But I, I, I think that's a joke in the film, but it's still. I get it. The whole thing's ridiculous. You know? Yeah, I get it. And I think that's, yeah. that's a moment that I kind of, I kind of like, I, I do laugh at. Other things I, I just, I'm not as much of a fan of. I mean, it, it, it was decent, I guess. Um, I was certainly harsh on it when I first saw it. And I, I think maybe it's just like, I, I shouldn't watch this movie right after 
fives ever again. I should maybe put some time in between. Yeah, it plays better separately. But I think the, the first the first big problem with this film is that there's, as you said, you know, he's just kind of being mean and doing these murders, you know, without any real, you know, anything behind it. And that's the main thing is there that first film you had, you had these curses. There's a set number of them. He's recreating all of them. And in here it's like random murders, you know? And it's like, I wish they would have found something, some, some number of, of something that he could like follow the same way. Because there's really no rhyme or reason to any of the uh, any of the murders, except they are somewhat based on like uh, not all of them, but some of them are based on like Egyptian things, you know. That and that's why they see they all feel disconnected, even though there are connections between a couple of them, but they feel so disconnected overall. Yeah, well, there's the one murder where the guy is out in the tent and. Fives has set up this gigantic fan to simulate a dust storm while the rest of the camp is sleeping. And he kills this one guy who is sitting reading turn of the screw. And he kills him by turning a screw and crushing him in this weird contraption, like a, a weird vice. Yes. That's a moment where I'm like, well, who is this random guy? Why is he killing this random guy? Why has he set up this machine how how did Fives know he'd be reading Turn of the Screw? <laughs> so that irony pays off. Oh, I got to find one of these guys who's reading Turn of the Screw or the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. I got to find somebody reading a screw book or this will not have an ironic, you know, output. It, 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 is, a, it is a flaw. Um... Well, we were talking about when we, we watched, you and I were watching the Stephen King uh, Dollar Baby Festival last weekend or whatever. And um, and we had one of the short films where it's uh, one of his stories involving pets and the character is reading Pet Cemetery while there's this thing going on about pets. And it was just like so heavy handed a joke, you know. And yeah. that's this is like the same thing. It's like, OK, oh, ha ha, he's reading Turn of the Screw. But wh- why is, does he like read books about screws all the time and so you know but no we don't know who this character is we don't know how fives knows anything about him you know it's like it's just very very disconnected and it's got uh returning duties by uh robert fust fust i'm, I'm always going to say both because i don't know which it is i just think used sounds right but you know, yeah he, it's how it's spelled you know yeah so he's returning as director and co-writer along with Robert Blees, who did not have any involvement in the first movie, I don't believe. Robert Blees was the edit, the story editor at AIP, and he did take a crack at the first script. Oh, okay. Yeah, but Robert Blees was actually the st- a story editor at AIP that, that uh, James Nicholson and Samuel Arkoff kind of relied on to get story, to get screenplays more to their liking, and a lot of other screenwriters did not like this guy, so. I can imagine. Yeah. So, but James Whiten, James Whitten, and William Goldstein, uh, they're not back. Not involved. So it, it does still have some style. It does still have some fun. Um, what is it? The uh, the Goldsmith from the, the first movie, um, you just said his name. Aubrey Woods. Aubrey Woods. Yeah. So Aubrey Woods is back. He has kind of a fun scene getting stuffed into the bottle and the, the ship's captain saying, no, that's Hugh Griffith. That's not Aubrey Woods. Oh, you know what? I'm completely... Wait. 
was Hugh Griffith not the goldsmith that they were? No, you know, I'm keeping this in because I completely mistook who you were talking about. We were talking about the goldsmith. I was mistaking it for the rabbi that they go to visit. The the no no yeah that's the rabbi yeah that's Hugh Griffith. Griffith. Yeah, Hugh Griffith was a really famous character actor. He's in lots and lots of movies. He's in Oliver. He's the magistrate in 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 in, in the musical version of Oliver Twist. Um, He's a really famous actor. Oscar. I don't know if he won an Oscar, but I know he's Oscar nominated. Yeah, his scene in this. He's a different character in this movie. Uh, In real life, he was a hardcore alcoholic. Okay, and he's in both films, uh, but he had promised Robert Foost that he would not drink while they were filming, and he didn't. But he was a he was a really sad case as an alcoholic, and everybody knew it. Uh, that was kind of he was just a really great actor, but really you know drunk all the time, and um, so his death in this movie is really kind of sad. <laughs> because oh, that is. That is really harsh. So there's, there's, yeah, there's the, there's the, uh, the line where he says uh, that it's a pity that the bottle is empty. He, he, he actually says a line when he looks at the giant empty bottle and he says, "Oh, it's a pity that it's so empty." And, and then of course he ends up stuffed inside of it and then sent out to sea. Yeah. Oh well, that that scene is uh, wow. That that's much darker. Tragic. Yeah. yeah, and he would I, die about ten years later. So yeah. Uh, I, I know I know I've seen him and stuff. I know he he was recognizable to me. I just didn't know his name. And so when you when you were talking about that character, I got it mixed up who you were talking about in the last movie. And you were talking about the Candyman from Willy Wonka. I was like, no, he was not. That that's not the same guy. Oh yeah, I totally know what you're saying. So I, I gotta say something here about uh, uh, Biterback, Robert Quarry, the actor playing him. Um, I my, myself and and I'm. Not a fan of the Count Yorga films, really. Um, I'm not really a fan of Robert Corey. I've just never really liked him all that much. But I keep reading that he's really miscast in this role. And I got to say, I actually kind of like him in this role. I think he's perfectly vain and selfish. And, and you know, I, I think he's, you know, as, a, as a dual villain, I, I think he's, he's kind of perfect for the part. But there was apparently this was the first time he and price worked together and they would work together again. I think in madhouse, I, th- I think it was the film, but Corey was like being groomed because the count Yorga was so successful. AIP was kind of grooming him to be their big star. And somebody on the set mentioned this to Vincent price that Corey was basically going to take Vincent price's place at AIP. And from that moment on, they got along. Okay. At the beginning, and from that moment on, uh, Vincent Price closed off to Robert Quarry. Like, we're never close to him again. And just completely just shut him off. So I guess there was, like, some tension on the set between the two of them. I think he's fine in this movie. I find him a more sympathetic character in this movie than Fives. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I feel like he's not really out to hurt anybody in this movie. Uh, he's a little bit brusque with people, of course. And... The revelation at the end of the movie, because we, we know he's been alive for a long time, and there's a revelation towards the end of the movie, unless I'm completely misrounding it, that, that he's basically been around for a lot longer than we thought, that he's, right. he's going to die without this, that he's been living for maybe centuries or more. And that revelation and the way he plays it, 
because Vibes tricks him. We're, we're I'm jumping all over the plot. We can kind of get into it. You're jumping away. Yeah, we're jumping over. I well, we can come back in and fill in the blanks. But Fives basically tricks him out of access to the River of Life, and then it kind of locks the gates behind him. And so Robert Quarry uh, Biderbeck is like sitting there pleading to be let let in, just have sympathy, and aging uh, hundreds of years or more, whatever the actual number is, in a few seconds. And his hair is growing longer and white, and he's getting all dusty and. Yeah, I find his death to be like really sympathetic in this movie. Yeah, you you generally feel that he really wants to prolong his life so he can be with his love, much like Fives. You know, they're they're both doing this for for love. Um, I know I know um, maybe Biderbeck is being more he's he's more desperate because he is running out of his his potion, but he is with Fiona Lewis, who is gorgeous. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, Fiona Lewis is always awesome in everything. Yeah, she's she's his his love interest in this film, and you totally understand why he wants to prolong his life. You know, it's like, yeah, okay, I get it. And she's like sweet as can be. She, there's not, she doesn't even know what's going on. She has no idea about what's going on with him. She's very, you know, she's just in love with him, and so she's completely sympathetic. So you do feel very sorry for the pair of them. Like I know, or I was reading uh, one of the things that they were thought of doing for a, a third Fives movie, which never happened. There were supposed to be five films as originally envisioned when they were making the first film. This was thought of as a, as a, as a quintet of films. I was not aware of that, actually. And I think that's why Goldstein has, has done five books altogether, you know, because he's still playing on that premise. But this was, from the beginning, uh, Foust was even thinking that this was going to be a five-film series. The, the second film was enough of a bomb that it killed the series. Oh, uh, well, that's a shame because I one of the proposed ideas for a sequel was uh, to bring Ca Count Yorga as a uh, nemesis for Fives. That would have been really cool. It would have been cool. It would have fit with this movie bringing, like, bringing characters back as other people and just the weird mix of uh, reused kind of stock character actors. Because like, like we said earlier, Terry Thomas is back. Uh, Beryl Reed is back. There's a really, really brief cameo with Peter Cushing. Yes. I, I liked the, the idea that this series would continue and there would be characters that would come back or actors that would come back as different characters or would get recast or, or uh, just shuffle around every once in a while. You could even imagine eventually they would have worked in Christopher Lee too because he was doing films off and on for them too, so... That would be so cool. Yeah. It would have been cool because yeah, Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, they re they all appeared together in two films, unless there's one I do not know about. I think it's two. And neither of them are, are worthy of the talents that have amassed for those movies. Uh, I'm talking about House of Long Shadows and Scream and Scream Again. Yeah, which I just rewatched and I was like, oh man, I keep thinking this movie's gonna be better than it is. And it's what, like Scream and Scream Again? Yeah, yeah. I, it's like I, I find Scream and Scream Again is a is a more enjoyable movie to describe to somebody than it is to watch. Yes. Because it sounds really crazy, but in practice it is kind of unpleasant and dry and very dull all to get all at once. But there's so much crazy stuff you just think it has to be entertaining on a banana sort of level, but it's not. Well, I want to talk about a couple of the murders. Um there's the clockwork snake murder that's very early in the film. 
It was such a weird scene. Oh, yeah. I felt so bad for that guy. Yeah, because there's the henchman and uh, and he gets he gets he gets attacked by a snake and he thinks he kills it. And then he realizes that it's a clockwork snake. And so he thinks, oh, okay, you know, ha ha ha. So another snake shows up and he laughs, you know, he's like, ah, ha, another one of these things, right? They can't really hurt me. And then, and, and it has, and instead of, it actually has a, like a little clockwork on the outside of its body. So the guy thinks it's like another one of these snakes, even though the other one had clockworks inside the body when he tore it open. So he falls for it and it turns out to be a real snake with a thing attached to it just to trick him. And then he gets, you know, um, and, and so he gets he gets bit by the snake. Uh, he kills it. And this this is one that there's a big case of misdirection. He kills the snake and he cuts the bite open. And he sucks the venom out, even though it's a python and pythons are not venomous at all. So there's no there's no venom to actually suck out of that bite. Um, and uh, pythons don't have the fangs to bite like it did either. So yeah, well, they're, yeah. They're, they're yeah. But OK, but anyway. Just like the bats, they got the wrong animal for what it's doing. But anyway, it's all misdirection because then the guy thinks he's out of the woods and then he picks up the earpiece to the phone and then you see uh, Fives nod to Volnavia and she pushes this pneumatic trigger and it springs a rod from the earpiece right through the guy's head. And it's like really shocking because it's like you were not expecting that at all. Yeah, that, that one I was like, why that's one of the things i'm talking about like why did he kill this guy um well that, that's because they're trying to get to the safe to steal the papyrus oh you're right you're right and he's just, the guy he's the guy guarding the, the safe of course and, of uh, course Biderbeck has the papyrus in it yeah of course of course but yeah. the guy i just felt so bad for the guy because he was just like the boss is gone i'm gonna sit here and drink his beer and play pool and like yep. he just yeah he, uh snooker thank you yeah, yeah, Snooker. There's something like kind of naive or innocent about his like performance. Even oh, yeah, he's, he's, you like he kind of liked the guy because he thinks, oh, the stupid snake. Oh, I tricked it, you know, or, or you know, I figured it out. And then he gets, and then he thinks he gets out of it. So like twice, he thinks he gets out of it. No, he's this big like human callus of a man. He's he's huge. He's like got this. He like, reminds kind of, me of uh, Ajab. He reminds me of Ajab a bit. Yeah, I can Just see that body body i can see that he's got kind of that build where he's really big and he's bald and he's just got kind of a a scarred face but he's got like this smile and he just like he's just having a good night yeah you think he's probably a nice guy if you met him in in a pub or something like that right you know so so that uh, right away like vincent or fives fives is not endearing me uh so in this movie like he wakes up in his house he's got some mechanism set up that the embalming he gave himself at the end of the last movie reverses itself and he um he rises volnavia is back the house has been destroyed some for some reason so volnavia is a different actress she is she is and and and, um whether that's whether that's because it's a completely different volnavia like it's volnavia mark ii or just like some weird plastic surgery after the acid in the face after the first movie yeah, completely different actress. And she's hard or any of the worse for wear. And that's what makes me wonder if she's an if she's a like a robot, if she's an automaton, um, does he just have like a whole series of Volnavias in a closet? And he just, you know, and if he had a whole series of Volnavias, why wouldn't you have more than one Volnavia walking around? Because he, he does so much, you think he'd have more help. 
Yeah. I will say that Valley Camp is more expressive as Walnavia, not in the face, but she's doing a lot of more moving around, a little bit more yeah. kind of vamping. I'd agree with that. I like so when they when they're on the ship, they're on the same ship as Biderbeck when they're going to Egypt. So he's on the same ship as his rival. And Fibes and Volnavia just openly and brazenly dance around the, the, the deck of the ship with the guy that they're competing against, you know, and who does not know they're there. But he's very open with all of his actions. The, there's the clockwork wizards that, that I don't know if I don't know if if Biderbeck would even know to make the connection if you saw the clockwork wizards or anything like that. But Fives is not hiding. He's really not hiding. Um, and I just found that hilarious that they're just like, yeah, we're going to do what we want. We don't care who sees us. You know, it's it, it, it's just kind of stunning how they behave. We don't know how like what their relationship was is prior to this movie, it does seem like Fives and Biderbeck know of each other uh, or that they have some, um, they either have some awareness or some familiarity when they finally meet up towards the end of the film. Uh, but it's not clear what happened because we, the the papyrus was in Fives's safe, right? But somebody had stolen it out of his house after that right. destroyed. He, it had been stolen, so he was stealing it back. Yeah, so it's Biderbeck not- stole it. Biderbeck stole it from his house. It yeah, was, well, was, Biderbeck explains that he got it from somebody who he found, somebody who knew he was interested in that sort of thing. Yeah, he well, okay, so some so either he had it robbed by somebody, or you know, yeah, somebody contacted him. So that might be it. So it wasn't Biderbeck who, who actually stole it physically, but he did get it through that 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 robbery, though. I just don't have as much to say about this movie. I, I kind of don't. Well, there there's the Scorpion murder that, that I wanted to discuss too. That. Because this one is the one that kind of comes close to being like a Rube Goldbergian kind of thing. I mean, it, it's not really, but it's it's closer than the other ones are. Okay. But because there you've got the jackal heads that come out of the the arm, the, the the chair arms or whatever, and they and they and they bite onto this guy's arms with these giant teeth, these jackal heads. And so there's while he's sitting there, trapped in in the in in the in the jackal heads, there's like a phonograph. And there's a statue of the his master's voice dog from RCA, you know, from the, the you always yeah, saw the, yeah, the yeah. dog in the photograph. And there's a recreation of that on the floor of the tent, you know, where this guy is trapped in the arms of these jackal heads. But then something triggers the uh, the dog to crack open, and it's loaded with scorpions. And then the, it's the scorpions that kill the guy, not the jackal heads on his arm. He just means he can't escape. But these like scorpions, like come out and they and they like crawl into his pants i mean it's really gnarly close of, of these like scorpions and there's like venom dripping off one of the ends of their stingers and uh, you know and it's it, it's a pretty you know kind of grisly scene it is yeah it's probably i'm trying to think it's it's probably the most graphic of the deaths yeah i would I, absolutely absolutely i mean well the, the 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 thing through the guy's head is fairly graphic also but it that's just you know a trick you know trick of you know positioning the camera and stuff but uh, yeah and i will say um biderbeck i mean i can't i call him more sympathetic and now just thinking of it here he is like entirely unmoved by the murders around him like when his his friend is killed on the boat uh that hugh griffith uh he basically just tells the captain you're like no don't please don't wait don't look around for him just i need to get going yeah 
and all of his his henchmen he's he's a little bit rude to them and anytime they die he's just like yeah i don't care i'm here doing something else so he isn't you know the nicest person although he is moved to action when fives takes diana so yeah he is he is uh motivated by love he ends up giving away his immortality to save her yeah he's still hoping he can get it back but he has given it up he knows that risk is there when he does it now that i think about it the hawk murder is actually more grisly where the he he, fives has a hawk attack the guy and at at the end of it after he's like he's clawing the guy's face and chest and all that stuff and then he actually eats a chunk of flesh from the guy's chest yeah you're right you're right you're right and then the hawk flies back to fives and fives is just like did you have a good dinner and it's like oh so creepy (laughs) there's a there's another there's another creepy moment with fives that i love it's like the best shot in the movie there's a bit where when biter but they're all standing there biter and his guys are standing there and he says or so so i can't remember biter back or or who it was but um whoever it is he says i have a little discovery of my own i think you have to see and they walk off i think it's the cops actually they walk off and there's like a pile of skulls that are laying there around them and they walk off and then you realize one of the skulls is actually Dr. Fives. And you, all you see is his eyes move and follow them. That's great. And it zooms in on his face. And you, you realize the whole time Fives has been sitting there just acting like a skull. You know, and he's got, he's got his like, he's got his facial, he's got the mask off. And so you just see his skull head. What I read is that Vincent Price, when he did movies, he, and, he did not like stuntmen. He liked, he insisted on doing nearly everything his character did himself. He even insisted on doing this like bit of eye acting within the film. That was actually him down amongst those skulls. And you never see his face or anything. You just see the mask. You, know, you see his skull head. But he's actually wearing that. And that's his eyes that are following the guys. And they could have gotten anybody to play the eyes. But they, it was Price. Well, I'm glad he did that. I can imagine just as an actor. I mean, I'm not an actor. But I can imagine me being like... I'd want to say, yeah, I did that. That was me just because it is one of the yeah. best shots in the movie. You're right. Yeah, it's a really cool shot. Uh, the other cool shot is at the end of the film with Volnavia. This is after Fives has gone into the tunnel and gone into the river of life. And then you hear a voiceover of Five saying, Volnavia, come join us on the other side. And the, the cops are looking, they see her and she's going down this tunnel that for me looks like the... Uh, the gun sight at the beginning of James Bond movies. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. But she's standing in it and then she just turns around and just disappears around the corner, but she's standing there just really kind of almost regal and just waiting for them to notice her before she disappears. And it's just such an odd thing. And apparently they added that voiceover. It wasn't supposed to be there originally. And the director uh, preferred it without the voiceover where it's just her standing there and just a really weird shot, really cool looking shot. Yeah. So they added that voiceover just to explain, well, where is Volnavia going? And so it's like, Oh, join us on the other side. And it's like, well, why wouldn't you take her through the river of life with you? <laughs> yeah, it's like. And other side of what? Like, is there just another, a back door? Well, she can just go if, around? She's a, if she's an automaton, suicide would just render her useless. You know, she wouldn't go anywhere. She, if she's a robot, she would just be a pile of dead parts. So it's really strange. I mean, does she have a soul? You know, I mean, what does he mean by join her on the other side or join them on the other side? And it's just a weird addition. And I can see why Deuce probably didn't like it, Addy, because it really adds confusion about, you know, the intentions there. 
Yeah, I actually, hearing it, I hadn't considered it without that line. I think I would prefer it without the line too. Not that it, I mean, it would have made a huge difference in the movie, but I can just see that, yeah, that, that probably it would have worked better. So yeah, we've been pretty much, you know, there's some cool scenes in this movie, but this movie is not nearly as, not even half as good as the first one. But there are bits in it where they almost approach the level of, properly approach the level of humor from the first film and just the style. And uh, uh, there's a bit where Fives, there's a hidden door inside the, the, the complex in the mountain where they are. And Fives finds the hidden door and he's really just wound up about it. And he's just, you know, he's, I just love his grandiosity where he's describing the hidden room and, and what it shall entail. And the whole time you see Volnavia behind him and she's holding a giant tuba <laughs> <laughs> for no reason. She just, well, she was playing it before, but she's just holding this giant tuba and she's just, and he goes through the hidden door and leaves her there. And she's just standing there holding a tuba in the middle of Egypt. <laughs> you know, It's just, that is what I love about the fives films just summed up right there. It's just so strange and out of place and works brilliantly. It's just, it's very oddball humor. And if this movie had more of not just, I mean, there's some funny lines in it, but there's, as you said, there's a lot of meanness to it, but if it had more of that, it would just be like so much better. They had other five or six scenes like that. There is another scene along the lines of the Brussels sprouts. Yeah, because that, that was the scene in the, fir- in the, in the first movie that yeah, I mentioned. But in this movie, there's also uh, Fives is, there, uh, Volnavia is uh, playing her violin, I think. And he is feeding her grapes, <laughs> you know. So she's a roller. I don't know how she's eating grapes, but he's putting, and, and, and she's putting grapes at least in her mouth, Right. And when they were filming the scene, he kept the grape in her mouth. And so he put a second one in there. It was like an improvisation. And then you see him pick up a pineapple and briefly consider putting the <laughs> pineapple in her mouth. And then he puts it down. He shakes his head and he puts it down. And that was another one where I just, I love the interplay with these two. You know, it, it, despite all the meanness going on in the rest of the movie, this relationship between Fives and whichever version of Volnavia this is, and in the first movie, I just love the interplay between the two of them. There's like this whole very lived in feel to their relationship, you know, and they're playful and sweet to each other. And it's like, it's very strange. Yeah, I would, I, I will agree with that. I'll agree with that. One other scene that I, I, I do kind of like in this is the, um, the Royal Scots Fusiliers when the, <laughs> they're trying to find the, they're trying to find help and the, the guy's like, it's the Royal Scots Fusiliers. I'd recognize <laughs> he hears the music and he's like, they must be, ha- they, they must have the a British patrol nearby. They see the flag over the dune. They see a, the tip of the, uh, they tip, see the, oh, the Scottish flag or whatever. But they see the tip of the flag over the dune. And, uh, and so he runs up there, right? And there's just an automaton holding the flag. And the rest of the, a, a couple of his, uh, his clockwork musicians are there. They're there, but they're they're like a little bit distant from from the uh, the first one, but it lays out that way. You know, it he, it's all a plot to trick him up there to that. I think it was the car. Yeah, they're t- they're that's they're, where he gets uh, with the sand, right? Yeah, that's that's when he uh, he kidnaps Diana and yes. uh, sets up the trap that's in the car. But I I love the way that these 
automatons look because they're they're clearly people inside these costumes even though they they're basically mannequins right but, but there are people doing them and the way that they look out there is kind of surreal and funny but also a little bit creepy just in the yeah, middle of the yeah. desert in this dune these automatons yeah. if you went over a dune and you saw an automaton who's just sitting there you know it'd be, it, that would be immediately creepy anyway right so yeah and that guy kept running towards them like he's he realized something was off and still went to go look at it i would have just turned and head back yeah. to the card like well he even... decided to use the layers yeah know? well no but he he realized that it was playing off of a phonograph and that they were just mannequins or whatever. He, he saw that and he stopped and looked for a while. Fusiliers are so great. He couldn't stop his fascination with them. Okay. Cause I would have just turned around <laughs> and headed right back to the car. Oh, I would have hightailed it out of there. You know, weird stuff has been going on and people have been dying. I wouldn't have been there already anyway. There, there was one exchange uh, with the cops that I really loved. It's uh, when I think, I think it's when they're still in, in London. And one of them mentions the, uh, he's, he's reading a piece of paper and he says, the Gloucester squirt murder. And the other one goes, Gloucester square murder, sir. And he says, ah, I can't read your handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought for a minute you were going to mention the weird, like, gay joke when they're sleeping, like they're camping oh, the, later on. When Trout and Waverly are in the, sleeping in the tent together. Well, they're, yeah, they're in the back of a truck, actually. They're not even in a tent. Yeah, that's but right. They're in a truck, but it looks like the inside of a tent, though. There's but they've got, yeah. they've got this bit of dialogue where Trout is trying to, you know, he, he's being servile to his boss. And the guy, the, the Waverly is like, you know what I really could want? And he gets this weird look on his face. Worry yeah. on his face. Like, what's that, sir? And he's like, it's warm. He's like, uh, okay. And it like, goes on for a minute where it's like, I, I think they're trying to make this a uh, like a gay panic joke, but it's not very clear that that's what Waverly is talking about. So it's it's more a joke in like why is Trout so worried about this? Because nothing he's saying is that suspicious. It, it kind of played like a, a joke off Benny Hill, you know that sort of thing. Yeah, it. it there were lots of on Benny Hill where it was like, ooh, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, do you have anything more you want to say? No, I think that sums it up. I mean, you know, disappointing, but there are some really cool scenes in it. Yeah, I like I said, I I spent years thinking this was just movie was terrible, just trash. I I complained about it a lot, <laughs> really. Like anytime anybody would, uh, you know, you'd see those little like quizzes on social media or whatever, like, and it would be like, "What's the worst sequel you ever saw?" And my answer was always Doctor Fives Rises Again, just because I it it was so disappointing. And then watching it, you know, years later, kind of divorced from that initial viewing, I I enjoyed it uh, again or not again for the first time i thought like hey this isn't that bad and then watching the two of them back to back i kind of felt that disappointment again where it just like it paled so much in comparison to the original but there there are still things in there if you're looking and paying attention yeah i watched each of them three times this week oh. and the third well you know how you know how i watch films yeah of course yeah in in, in like batches and uh, the third time I watched him was yesterday. I mean, I've seen them both many, many times, but the third time this week that I watched them was yesterday. And um, this that time I watched them in reverse order. So I watched Dr. Fives Rises Again the first, first before I watched the model, just because I wanted to see if I watched it separate from the first one, would I like it any better? And I actually did. It actually helped me to have watched it, you know, first. 
because then I, I, I noticed a lot of stuff, you know, that I normally wouldn't if I was like just dialing it from the first one. So no, that, that sounded interesting. I might have to do that. I, I think next time I'll do what I did last time where it'll just be a random movie, a random Vincent Price. Yeah, movie just I put it in. Not with, yeah. Not with the the original. Um, so that's going to do our do it for our discussion here for Dr. Fibes and uh, all, both Dr. Fibes. Highly recommend, of course, Abominable Dr. Fibes. Everybody should go out and watch that whenever you can. Uh, we will be right back with our final segment and our goodbyes. All right, we're back and a little bit different. Um, you know, we're changing things up around here. I'm kind of figuring out what to do with this final segment, but we're not really going to do a top five today. I actually didn't didn't prepare anything. Um, I'm not really planning on preparing anything for the month. I kind of just want to see what my uh, guests bring. But um, I figured we'd go over a couple of things. Rick brought some things, uh, some side viewings that you might, I think you might want to recommend. So um, what do you got for us, Rick? Well, I watched a ton of Vincent Price movies in the past week, like about 20 of them outside of Fives. But I'm going to mention a couple of films that are not Vincent Price films that kind of tie into the mood of Fives in different ways. But they're both uh, Georges Franju films. Oh, okay. Uh, um, the first one is Eyes Without a Face from 1960. And uh, I don't know if you have seen this movie, you know it. Um, it is, it's not really a mad scientist. I mean, you, if you watch the film, you go, yeah, he's a mad scientist. He's a doctor. His uh, daughter ended up very disfigured in the face. And so he is basically tricking women into coming from other countries to France. And then he kills them. But first he removes their faces and grafts them onto his daughter's face. And then, of course, there are complications with the, the graft and they fail and stuff. So there's like a series of these murders that he has committed uh, trying to restore his daughter back to life. It's a really very creepy, very strange film, with a, but also with a very fairy tale like feel to it. The, the doctor himself is not fives like, but this kind of the situation kind of is. I mean, there's just... You can you can you can see Fives the making of Fives being informed by having seen this film. That just strange mood that overtakes both films uh, is very present because it was made in France in 1960 when they were not making horror films. This was kind of like one of the first. I mean, Les Diabolik was definitely a horror film, but you know, not as gruesome as this one is overall. Yeah, you didn't really do blood in a lot of films, things you know, that, that their censors were very harsh and things. So they had to really downplay a lot of stuff in there, even though there's a very gruesome skin removing scene in the film. But they, you know, when people get stabbed or something like that, there's not like blood spurting out or anything like that. You know, apart from the operation scene, it it's more of a mood piece. Um, I know you've seen it, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's terrific. It's a fascinating film. And then a few years later, he did a movie called Judex. Yep. And that also, uh, not mad science-y, it's more 
of a play on it. Uh, well, it's actually a remake of an old silent uh, French serial, very famous, also by the same name. It's more of a, of a stylistic exercise in remaking that serial, but only in a feature film setting. But there is this kind of battle between good and evil in the film and there's like this strange mass ball scene uh with this magician and everybody's wearing masks and there's lots of like this this kind of grand stuff that you would see in uh um also in fives and uh it also has friends you has has this strange way with camera setups and and uh the girl from uh, eyes without a face who plays the disfigured daughter uh, is the ingenue in this film who is like keeps getting in you know trap after trap by the bad bad guys and and then Judex has to keep rescuing her over and over and over again and it's just 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 grandly staged and just a lot of fun as a film that, that one's good too um those are the only two Franju films I've seen is Eyes Without a Face and Judex but I like both of them a lot I've seen a couple others but um but yeah those those two are just like a lot of they're, I shouldn't say a lot of fun because they're they're not hard to watch, but they're they just really get you with mood and stuff. And so I wouldn't say they're fun, fun movies, you know, but they are uh, very rewarding watches. Yeah, but I get I get what you mean too because they're not they're not fun like a a madcap comedy or but they're, oh no not at all yeah no but but Judex is like is like breathless adventure. Yeah, they're fun the way that. I mean, certain film fans, I think any of the film fans that would listen to this show would find fun. Like Eyes Without a Face, of course, is a really moody, creepy horror film that you you would still, to a certain group of people, describe, yes, as fun. But uh, you're right. It might Maybe that's just a, mi- a little misleading, but um, I, I guess a good way to say is like they're entertaining films. Well, that's why I said rewarding watches. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I was trying to get around fun. So, I mean, they're fun for me that, cause that's exactly the type of movie I look for. Yeah. Other people go, that wasn't fun at all. It is this person and her face got peeled off and you know, it's like, okay, that's not what I meant. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but yeah, those two in particular were the, the standouts. I mean, otherwise I just watched a ton of Vincent Price movies uh, and, you know, cause I want to, you know, want to celebrate him because that's what we're doing. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm I'm doing the two. I'm watching a bunch more for this show. Um, I, I've already said I'm going to be doing some other watching as well, and we'll be getting into that, I'm sure, in in future episodes. But yeah, uh, I actually like I was trying to think of movies that I would do for side views for uh, fives, and the one I came up with was that as well was Judex. Although I I think, I mean, yeah, visually and stylistically, but especially that masked ball scene. The magician in the bird mask doing the strange, you know, con, con, he's pulling dove after dove after dove out of his, you know, out of whatever, you know, and it's, and it's the, the person who plays Jude X was a real magician. That actor was actually a conjurer. Um, and so, and a pretty well known in France at the time, even though he's actually American, but um, American or British, can't remember, but, um, but yeah, American. he was a, but uh, yeah, I, I found that very interesting that they, he was actually doing magic in that scene. It wasn't, you know, a put on or anything like that. It was, well, I mean, not that I mean, it is a put on, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. But that that, ma- that mask ball scene and the mask remind, you know, you got the same, not the same, but you've got like that frog mask in Fibes. 
yes uh, which has kind of a, a similar look to some of the, the masks in this the animal masks yeah it's the kind of mask that was popular at masquerades in that that period that they're doing yeah a couple of years ago i i did not watch uh judex they didn't have it you watched the vampire one oh yeah and phantomos oh yeah that's right Van yeah phantomos a couple of years ago they had them at the library and and they didn't have judex but it's they're french serials by the same guy who did the one this is based on yeah really entertaining judex is the serial i haven't seen yeah the same here same here but the other two are, are pretty entertaining i enjoyed both of them quite a bit no the, but the other one i was going to mention we already mentioned it within the show uh is uh was phantom of the paradise i found phantom of the paradise especially the early scenes in fives when he's playing the organ and he's coming up it just called to me the, yep. the ridiculous theatricality of phantom of the paradise as well yeah i suppose you could actually take any phantom of the opera movie and make that you know kind of a because fives is very much informed by all the versions of phantom of the opera oh yeah of course like that he's wearing a mask and he's in a cloak and i i get that but it, specifically you know just the the color palette the neon and everything a phantom of the paradise is is what right. it, i thought of um yeah there's there's a couple other films that uh i mean there's i mean there's a lot of similar films the dr mabusa films kind of fit in the same area too we the mysterious crime boss and and uh especially testament of dr mabusa it's like uh, the Fritz Lang classic um, definitely would like tie in with vibes very well. Yeah, I can see that. Well, I think that's going to do it for us today. Uh, before we go, Rick, was there anything that you wanted to plug anybody or anywhere that you would like uh, to yeah. people? Yeah, um, uh, check me out on cinema for cellblock.blogspot.com uh, uh, or just look up cinema for cellblock that's C E L B O O K. I'm sorry, B-L-O-C. I don't even know the, how to spell my own website. But you can check me out on there. Uh, we do, uh, oh, we, I do uh, reviews of old animation films. So if you're into that sort of thing, I've uh, been around for about 15 years. So uh, check it out. Awesome. And us, you can check out on uh, Twitter and Instagram, both places at Two Headed Pod. There's a Facebook page as well. I, I'm less active there. If you want to email us and you don't want to, you don't have Twitter or Instagram, but you still want to contact us, there's a Gmail, twoheadedpod at Gmail. I mean, I'm trying to keep it simple across the board. You should be able to find us. And we'd love to hear from you. We'd also love to hear from you if you are enjoying the show. Rate, review, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and that'll be it for us this week. I will be back next week. Rick will be off doing something else. We're going to get separated here so shortly. Uh, but I will see you next week with a new pair of movies and a new guest host body. Ooh.